Liza. She really doesn't want you to sit back and relax tonight. You'll find out why when you find out what we're talking about. And I, when she came up with this crazy idea, I told her, I'm totally going to throw you under the bus. So, <laughs> so I just did. This was Liza's idea here tonight. Um, let's pray, though, before we get started, okay? Father God, once again, we uh, recognize the fact that we are so rich not only in material goods, not only in the fact that we don't ever go hungry, but that we have the availability and the abundance of your truth at our fingertips. We have it everywhere, all the time available to us. And we ask tonight that even in spite of that, maybe, we don't take this time for granted, that we appreciate the fact that through your spirit, you do speak to us and you have a word for each and every one of us, that we really lean in and listen and uh, thank you in advance for what you're going to do, what you're going to say to each and every one of us before we leave this place tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, I see the Kathy Zucchini touch here, the Christmas, the twinkle lights and cinnamon and pine and vanilla and Christmas, you know, you got to love it. Frosting even on cookies. That's always a wonderful thing. I can't get too much of that. Music that almost everybody likes. Christmas, what's not to like, right? It's just those big concepts, family, love, peace. You have things that any kind of thing that's yearly, especially good kind of things like Christmas, you have that yearly layering of the good memories that you want to keep. And I wonder if some of you have a memory Sort of like I was reminded of the other night, we went somewhere and people had all their Christmas decorations up. And I remember as a, as a little kid, in the back seat of the car, driving around, and you'd have to go to fire stations and hospitals and see the decorations. Remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Um, and the best ones had animals. They have a manger scene, you know, we've got this cute manger scene up here, and they'd have maybe have live animals around. And... Um, other memories, some of you look like the sweet type that maybe have memory of being one of those little angels in a Christmas pageant at some point. You know, somebody, somebody made you a costume out of somebody's old bed sheet and your job was just to be sweet, look cute up there. We have seen endless portrayals of that night in Bethlehem, haven't we? Uh, everything from preschool programs, maybe one that you were part of, to... Hollywood, all out Hollywood, big budget movies of that Bethlehem night. One of the most unusual in my life was the year that we were in New York City and we saw the Christmas show at Radio City Music Hall. And that starts out the first half with the Rockettes. Y'all know the Rockettes? A lot of leg, you know, not very many clothes, but a lot of legs. And, um, so they do the whole rocket thing, and they do all the Christmas music, and the rockets do their kicking thing, and then they get to intermission, and the curtain closes, and the scene changes, and it gets all serene and quiet, and then they start bringing camels and donkeys, live ones, down the, down the aisles. And, you know, you try to get in this spirit that you're going to see, but I just kept having in my mind this vision of those rockets and wondering, are they going to surround the stable, you know? <laughs> they going to show up in little angel outfits and do their, 
it was just a it was just a really weird thing my my mind just couldn't get kind of around that and you know and there may have been people there that loved that first half and the rockets and everything and like one lady I heard she, she kind of looked at, at the whole thing changes to the stable and she kind of looks at it with a sigh and she wonders why some people insist on bringing religion into everything now you know you might feel that way. There might be somebody here that kind of feels that way tonight. And if you do feel that way, I can assure you we aren't going to dwell on that major scene. And we are going to dwell on one that I think will keep you awake. Uh, kind of the only thing it has in common with the usual manger scene is the color red. And there is a woman giving birth. And if you have a Bible with you... Um, you probably are expecting that some of the things you get out of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, are the things that might keep you awake, even when you don't want to be awake, actually. Uh, it's really perfect for one of the hot gift items that I've heard. One of the things, you know, you get those pop-ups on your computer screens about what the hot, you know, gift item is this year. One of them this year is a 3D, what do they call it, a virtual 3D headset. And you put this thing on, and it has earphones, and you walk around with this goofy-looking thing on, but you're ex virtually experiencing any kind of whatever reality you can access in the world of pretend. And you really feel like you're there. And I know you're all dying to have one, I can tell, by the enthusiasm on your face right now. But I bet some of you have a kid who really wants one of those things. But anyway, this Christmas scene that we're looking at would really benefit from that kind of gear. Except if you could experience that way, it might be a little bit scary, actually. Um, but it really is a scene that is perfect for the kind of high-tech, super special effects kind of things that we can do these days. But if you were to really think about this, the scene we're going to look at, what you really need is not a virtual reality headset. You really need like a reality reality headset if there was such a thing. Because what God does with the book of Revelation is he gives us these weird, crazy symbols that kind of shake us up a little bit and make us understand that they are there in order for us to experience what is really, truly true in the spiritual realm about things that otherwise would be invisible to us that we wouldn't think about and we wouldn't be able to see. And so we're going to take this little dip into the book of Revelation for a few minutes. And when we do that, I think what it'll do is it'll empower us to come back, re-enter our own present world with either a new or a greater desire to follow King Jesus. And it should give us a kind of delicious anticipation of the promise and what's to come. So open up, if you have a Bible, to Revelation chapter 12. Because if you don't follow along, you might not believe what you're hearing. <laughs> we are going to talk about a great dragon, a great sign. When you go to Revelation chapter 12, it starts out, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a son. And this woman is not Mary. Just disclaimer here at the beginning in case you get that in your head. Why would you think that, huh? Just because this is Christmas. Anyway, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. 
Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. This is usually where women quit reading, right? I mean, a dragon's bad enough, but you get a seven-headed one, and I'm just done, you know? I don't like things that have multiple legs, let alone too many heads. So this is, this is, really, uh, this is really a beast here. And his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. You're all awake, right? <laughs> when I got to this verse, I really was going to remind everybody, this was Liza's idea. <laughs> okay, was going to devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And those of you who have done some Bible study know right there, that gets your attention, because who's this always talking about? Rule the nations with an iron scepter. That's King Jesus, right? So her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken of for 1,260 days. This is usually not the Christmas story that you call your friends and say, Let's just have a little Christmassy event. <laughs> but, like I said, everybody will stay awake. So this isn't Mary. Just kind of keep that in mind. We don't have any shepherds. We don't have any wise men. We don't have any angels here. But this is God giving us a glimpse into the spiritual realm about what was this whole night of nights, this all is calm, all is bright, in the context of world history and what was going on in the spiritual realms as we have something like this described. This originally, the book of Revelation was originally written to an audience that was living in times with really a lot of similarities to our own. They were living in a culture that was kind of imploding from within and the church was constantly under pressure to compromise with their rotten culture to avoid uh, persecution. And don't you know that those people, like us, were probably really tempted at times to wonder at the mess their world was in, maybe even despair at the kind of mess that they were looking around and seeing their own culture and their own nation in. And they needed this. They needed to see that, and we need to see, that there are invisible spiritual realities always that are impacting our own times and the circumstances of our lives. And that helps us know how to respond to the circumstances in our own lives. How do we live in such a time where God has placed us? And we know he's very deliberately placed each of us in the exact place, in the exact time where we're supposed to live. So they needed to know this, and we do too. And I, I, you get another description of this whole what's going on in the heavenlies by one of my favorite authors, Ann Voskamp. And uh, she describes this invisible reality that is described here at the beginning of Revelation 12 this way. She says, on the night Jesus was born, there was more happening than we could see. God's letter to us, the Bible, tells us that high, high up in the heavens above the manger, behind the velvet curtain of silent stars, an all-out war flashed angry. Armies of evil 
exploded in a raging battle against God, the Father King of the universe. In heaven, when Jesus was born, it wasn't a silent night. It was a cosmic war spinning across space. All earth held its desperate, wild breath, and Jesus came for you, warring against the darkness to win you back. Do you love that? So the arrival of baby Jesus in human flesh really was the opening shot of the final battle of the great war that we've had going on between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And behind this peaceful manger scene, a vicious battle had been raging, and baby Jesus, his entry into the world, meant the certain defeat of Satan. The deliverance of God's people was as good as one. Most Bible commentators look to this passage that comes just before and treat all in one big thing, the birth, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because those things happened, these early Christians needed to know what we need to know. God's already won. He's already won. But... But we've got this dragon, and as we go on to see these verses tell us that Satan was defeated, uh, but there is an ongoing war on earth. He failed to devour the male child. He lost, it goes on to say in verse 7, there was a war, and Satan lost the war against Michael, the archangel, and so he was flung down to the earth, and this wounded, defeated, cornered serpent now turns his rage against the woman as well as her other children. So we read this and think, okay, so who is this woman if it isn't Mary? This woman represents God's covenant people, going all the way back to the very beginning when God promised Abraham that through your seed, I will bring about this promised one. And all through the long history of Israel, looking through all the Old Testament scriptures, you see the Psalms and, and very many of the prophets, you see references to the fact that God's chosen people were like this metaphor of a woman in labor. All down through their long history, they are striving to bring forth this promised one. The promise of this one goes all the way back to Eden, all the way back to that first promise that God made when Adam and Eve found themselves deceived by the serpent when God said, I will take care of it. I will send one. The seed of the woman, I will send one, and he will crush the head of Satan. And then years and years and years go by. One of the things I don't appreciate about God is he's so patient. Time just goes so slowly sometimes. But it does appear that when Bethlehem happened, he put a fast-forward button into play. But for all those years of Israel's history, we see the metaphor over and over again that Israel, God's covenant people, the true believers of Israel, Abraham's seed, were people who were like a woman in labor, struggling to bring forth this promised one who would bless the entire world, who would crush the head of Satan, 
And we, you can see those kind of references in Isaiah and the prophet Micah and a lot of the Psalms, like I said, this long, long labor. And you see that happening at the same time you see over and over and over again from Pharaoh to Haman to endless stream of human enemies that were always threatening, always attacking, always trying to take out Israel and take out, finish God's opportunity to bring forth this Messiah. And of course, in Bethlehem, it was all to no avail. He was not able to devour this male child. When we get down to verse 14, this is after, after the devil uses, loses his fight with Michael. Verse 14 says, When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Now these two great wings of an eagle, maybe that kind of rings a bell for some of you on other references you hear in the Old Testament. The eagle wings were a place of protection, a place of God's protective care and God's rejuvenating, uh, life-giving care. So not only was the dragon not able to devour the male child, but there's this imagery that would make that first audience think right away about the way that God protected and provided and got his people out in the wilderness to prepare them to become a nation. Now, when I hear the word desert or wilderness, I think miserable camping trip. <laughs> My kids lived in the desert for a while, and I think grit. It's not even sand, it's grit, which is really an unpleasant thing. You know, the desert, the wilderness doesn't have a good connotation to us. But the first people that heard this would immediately think about his people being in that period of their history where they had manna from heaven, where they had the pillar of fire at night and they had a cloud in the daytime, where God protected them, provided them for them, led them, and all the while, what was he doing to them? changing them from a bunch of no good downtrodden slaves into a fighting force, into a nation. So he used that place. And so when they hear those words, that what they, that's what they would think about. He's got this whole illusion here is the fact that there's this protective sanctuary and also this place of building up, of preparing, of getting them ready for the next thing. We have the other idea down here. There's, a, you know, from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. This is a really bad visual, too. I don't, you know, they have fountains at the garden store and you can pump the tail of the bird and it spits out. I think anything coming out of a mouth is just not good. You know, this is not. But this, this picture here of this river that would overtake them also has a really, a picture that has a really good connotation because it says the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out on his, out of his mouth. 
So God actually took care of this whole, what he, you know, what the, what the dragon would do, God takes care of it when it comes to his own people, that actually opening the earth. And this would cause his first audience to think about the fact when Moses had people who were really a problem and were rebelling, God opened the earth and swallowed up some of these people. I remember the first time I studied that, my grandma used to say all the time, I just wish the, the earth would open and swallow me up. And I thought, where did she, you know, that's really a weird, but she learned that in Sunday school. So, you know, if you ever heard your grandma say anything, my grandmother used to say a lot of things out of the Bible that years later I thought, oh, like she always, she wouldn't swear, she'd just say, land of Goshen. <laughs> so, you know, that's really a weird, but there was a land of Goshen. I was so shocked to find that that wasn't something that just came out of the top of her head. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, if you need some kind of phrase like that, you might consider that. Nobody will know what you're talking about mostly anyway, unless they study Exodus. Anyway, I totally am afraid when I get off on things like that. Um, God does this. He takes away the water. He takes away the threat. He has them in this place. So we really have this picture here. Even though it's a weird scene, it's not a really hard concept. What God's saying here, his covenant people, his, his people who believed in the promised Messiah, suffered and struggled against the threat of this terrible enemy for centuries, but did bring forth the Messiah. Satan was completely thwarted in all of his efforts to deal with that male child because he was taken away. And, of course, we have Jesus exalted in, in the heavenlies now. Um, but, and that's all the good news, but then there's some bad news. Verse 17 says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the dragon is beaten. He knows it. And he's enraged. And so he continues to fight. We have an enemy who wants you to be miserable, to feel condemned, to be discouraged, to actually be ineffective and unproductive as a follower of the Lord Jesus. And it isn't, this particular verse says it's the followers of Jesus, those that hold to the testimony of Jesus who have this enemy, but actually we know his fury isn't aimed only at God's people. He's also after those who are not yet God's people. So anyone who is not yet a follower, or follower of the Lord Jesus, he wants to continue that way. He wants to keep them in that delusion that it doesn't matter until those people are out of time and will spend eternity suffering because what this nasty, ugly, seven-headed, mini-crowned, yucky dragon loves is suffering, pain, and waste. This is his expertise. Now, I... <laughs> I always kind of wonder, you know, if you're beaten, why not just give up? You know, I'm one of those people, you get towards the friends, you're 100 points behind, just quit, okay? Why not just give up? If he knows he's beaten, why doesn't he quit? You wonder that? There's a, there's, I think, because we don't thankfully understand the level of hate that comes from this dragon. At the end of World War II, Soldiers under General MacArthur 
really got upset with him because he would do PR statements and he would come and he'd say, this island, that island is taken. All we need to do is some mop-up operations. And it would sound really good to the people back home. They'd be real excited about that. But the soldiers that were going to do that knew that they were going to be dealing with the worst battles so far, the bitterest fighting yet, because they're fighting a a, a beaten, cornered, hate-fueled enemy who has no hope and absolutely nothing left to lose. So they would be full of fury. And that's what we have with the dragon, who, of course, you've all figured out by now, represents who? The devil. He is beaten, he's full of fury, his time is short, he knows it. That's kind of what happened at that stable. All is calm, all is bright, but whew, not good news for him. So, we read somewhere, and, and, and we like the stable, and we like the baby, and we like all that. I, I read this little blurb about some missionaries who had an experience that I think we can all totally understand. They're, they're trying to present the gospel, tell people about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have never heard, and they start with the Christmas story. And they talk about God coming and the love and everybody's just very receptive and very, very approving. But then they pull out the pictures of the cross and try to explain that that little baby came to die. Everyone who had been approving, everybody who had been warm, suddenly is full of revulsion and horror and drove him out of town. And, you know, we sing glory to the newborn king, but don't we mostly have our minds stuck on the newborn part? We do. We sing newborn king, not newborn king. <laughs> we kind of, you know, we're, we're this baby, we have to understand this baby is and always has been king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who is either your judge or your savior. We're told that someday before this baby, this king, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. And we have to, it's okay to have sentimental feelings about this baby. But at some point, they have to give way to maybe a disturbing awareness that his coming means for every single person either a wonderful salvation or a horrid condemnation. This is, this is that baby. That baby king grew up and lived the only perfectly perfect human life ever so that he would be fit to take on to himself all the penalty of what we all accrue just by being us. And I think we're all old enough in this room to know we're just wrong, right? We just have wrongness about us. And if you ever have doubt of that, then you're a mother and you have a two-year-old. <laughs> you have to teach him everything except how to sin. That's totally natural. Comes without a problem, right? So we have this, this problem. 
And every single one of us, God says, it's appointed to every single person once to die and then judgment. And for some people, some people will stand before God having the Lord's very, this Lord Jesus, this King of King Lord, having his very righteousness covering them. It's like they're clothed with it. Because at some point they said, Lord, please have mercy on me. I know, I'm just wrong. So have mercy on me. And it's so crazy that that's, we, we ask and he gives it. He gives perfect credit for asking that he, that our wrongness get included in all the wrongness he play, pays for. What a deal. I remember that I really understood that as a five-year-old. And I used to drag little kids down the aisle at church because I thought, what a deal. Who doesn't want this? This is so easy. This is so great. Of course, I didn't know the whole thing, but I knew enough, and that really is enough. If you don't know anything about the Bible, if you know that, right now, your whole life can change by you just saying, have mercy on me. I realize I am wrong in so many ways. Anyone who will not do that, it's really awful, especially when we get to this kind of, because not doing that means for all the people that won't do that, they face this terrible, alarming prospect of having all Satan's accusations against them ringing true. People who won't do that live and die with actually having this dragon, Satan, as their master. Because there's only two options. And the Lord Jesus himself actually said, you can't serve two masters, just one. One choice is King Jesus, Lord Jesus, and the other is this one who will turn on you, accuse you, and take his pleasure in your pain. There are no other options. So one thing this strange Christmas scene should do for all of us is cause us all to go running to that one that came in order for us to be protected and to be preserved forever. You either run to him the very first time or you run back again to just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Isn't it true that sometimes we can just kind of live with God's salvation for a long time and totally forget what we've been rescued from? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that this seven-headed, terrible, beastly thing is not my master. The angels that came to the birth of Jesus, you know, it's interesting because they get quoted a lot. And when you hear the angels, what the angels say, we always say, the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men, period. Isn't that the whole thing? Do you realize the rest of that phrase says, on whom, to men on whom his favor rests. So the peace and joy for Christmas that everybody so wants, that people that live near us who are, maybe their house is covered with lights, but you know they still live in darkness. What they want is what we have this joy and peace and favor of God, 
he really is only a comfort to those who will have him as king. So that's another reason if he is your king to run to him this Christmas again and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Maybe a lot of you have a memory of life before he was your king and there was no peace, no possibility of peace. There was no comfort. He's the only place for that. This whole idea of the defeated, the defeated dragon, you know, you look around our world and you see our world is messy, isn't it? It's a messy, threatening place. And it is no wonder because this dragon is still thrashing about. <laughs> he is after the ones that, that will uh, follow King Jesus. He's after the ones who maybe will follow King Jesus in the future. So we're here in this place of provision and protection in this wilderness place that is, remember, a good kind of wilderness. But um, the fact that we are still in this wilderness... There's some really important things to remember about that. You know, we're in this wilderness, and this has to remind us that we aren't there yet. Remember, one of the things that was very obvious to the people as they were traveling to the promised land was that when they were in those tents out in the wilderness dealing with grit, they were not yet in the land of promise, right? They were very definitely on their way. And one of the things that's really hard for us where we live with such wealth, such beauty, such richness, so many different options with what we do with our time, it's hard to really kind of realize that this isn't all there is. Not a hard thing at all for people who are in some of the places in the world that are heartbreaking situations. You know, it totally changed the way that I sing in church when I realize there are people on the earth right now who need to go in holes of the ground or teach their children to sing hymns and whispers because they can't let the neighbors hear. You fuss about the music you don't like at church? Hmm. That's probably not a good idea. I don't know what the Lord would say about that, but can you imagine that, never being able to sing out loud? When we think about the fact that we are not supposed to settle here, we have to think about, so if we're not supposed to settle here, what is the goal of a Christian life if it isn't just to get through this life with as few troubles as possible? That's a lot of my goals a lot of days. Let's just try to make it through this one without, you know. Um, but when you think about those people, in the wilderness. They were on their way to this place where they were supposed to settle. One of the things about that trip is that they were to persevere. They were to look forward to getting there. They were to expect the fact that they were still in the wilderness. And I'm sure that wilderness, well, we know one thing, that wilderness had a snake infestation that was really nasty. That's, you know, that's another reason why the whole word wilderness is just not good. Um, but they, they had these, these battles to fight, and we do too. And one of the things about the people that first got this letter, remember I, I said their, their culture was very much like ours. It was in trouble. 
politically, the world was in trouble in that time. The church was in trouble. It was under attack at that time. And these people needed to know that um, there would be there would be battles. They were tempted to think like the people around them. If things aren't going well, then that must be a sign that God isn't paying attention. And actually, we know, because we have the whole rest of the New Testament, that things not going well really isn't any indication of anything except that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, in this world you will have what? Trouble. I thought that's the most biggest understatement Jesus ever made. You think? In this world, you will have trouble. You will have spiritual battles. You will have, this isn't it yet. We're not there yet. You know, in Americans, we have it so, so, so well sometimes that we think, well, this would be good enough, right? This is good enough if this is all there is. We'll talk about that in a minute. But while we're in this wilderness time, he tells us you will have troubles. There'll be no end of troubles. There'll be no end of the fact that these troubles, when you want to glorify God in your life, it's going to mean that you're going to have spiritual battles. But he puts us in this place so that we have what we need to deal with all the situations of the wilderness. He tells us again and again, one of the things that I think is really hard in Revelation is he just tells you about all these terrible things that are going to happen. And he says, but you need to overcome and every time I read that, I think, I am not an overcomer. We have a problem. You know, it says, you need to persevere. And I think, I don't persevere. We have a problem. What a relief to find out God's grace covers that. You know what? We will persevere. We will overcome. Persevere is one of those words, isn't it? Like patience. We want to like it. We really do. We just don't want to do it. But he will he will cause us to persevere because he's got us in this place. He's got us in this wilderness place where he is protecting, where he's preserving, where he's preparing. He's given us what we need to live in this place. Now, first of all, he's given, if you have ever asked him for the mercy of that amazing, indescribable, wonderful gift of salvation, he's given us that, first of all that grace to cover all of our wrongness. He's given us that amazing salvation, and that results immediately. It could have happened to somebody here just in a, in a minute when they just had the thought, I just want mercy. He immediately replaces our dead inside with his very own spirit, takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart that is able to love him, able to obey, able to understand, just that fast. But... Then he also tells us later on in the New Testament, he has the most effective gear for living in this wilderness time that we're living in. A lot of it's spelled out, and you maybe some of you learned it when you were a little kid in Sunday school. What is it? The full armor of God. Boys really get into this a lot more. If you were a little tomboy, maybe you really like that armor stuff. You know, I have a little grandson who just loves to go around flashing swords and his favorite line in the whole Bible is, in the, in the name of the living God, I come against you. And then he chops off somebody's head. Um, you know, there, we have those Old Testament things. Most of us, I look at most of you, and I think you're probably like me. If we had a weapon, we'd probably do more harm to ourselves than any enemy. But thankfully, God gives us a weapon like no other weapon 
that whole full armor of God, you know, he gives us, a, there's a lot of different, that helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and all of those things. But in all of that gear, the weapon is the sword, the sword, the word of God. And the word of God, what can we say about the word of God? You know, the word of God is so powerful, so powerful. Sometimes just a phrase in the word of God is a thing that begins to do something. Sometimes just a phrase in the word of God is what really moves somebody from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. I don't know how old I was when I first, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who will ever believe on him will not die, but have everlasting life. I didn't know any theological anything, but I believe that, and that's enough. That's a sword. The word of God can take somebody from darkness to light. Later on in my life, I hit a patch where I was certifiably nuts. I was crazy. Crazy, crazy as a loon. A trouble that hit, that took me out. And through that... God gave me a verse. God is not the one that gives you a spirit of fear. He gives you power and love and a sound mind. I had nothing else to hang on to. I was afraid to leave my house, but I was afraid to be alone. That's a real hard spot to be in. You know, you can sit in your car in the driveway, but that's, you can only do that for so long. That verse saved my life. The sword of the spirit fights spiritual battles. And, you know, when you are a wilderness dweller, you would know, don't leave your tent without a weapon. And you cannot live, you can't survive as a follower of the Lord Jesus in this world today without having it with you all the time. It's got to be on your mind all the time. And we have it available everywhere. You can pull it out of your pocket right now, right? I have this little you know, phone in my pocket, it has 10 versions of the Bible on it. The hard part is just, yeah, well, there's lots of hard parts about that phone, but, but we have it, we need to know it, you need to study it, you need to study it with people that don't know as much as you do, you teach them, that's the best way to learn it. You need to study it with people that know a lot more than you do, because that's another way to learn it. You need to read it, you need to think about it, you need to Study it in such a way that you have to think hard about it because then you reap all the benefits of meditating on it. This the most amazing thing, too, about this, this sword, this weapon that he's given us, that I think if you were doing it kind of in a science fiction-y sort of way, you'd show yourself holding that sword, and every time you use it, it would be like it would infect you somehow. It would change. Have you seen some? I know some of you watch science fiction, even if you don't want to admit it. But, you know, you could just see it make you go kind of, I don't know, red. But you'd see it just take over. Because that sword actually is God's means to transform us, to actually change our minds, protect our minds, becoming part of the group think of the people around us into becoming his mind and seeing things and seeing these spiritual realities that otherwise we wouldn't think. It, one of the things that Ann Voskamp says is that when we come to the manger, we're like broken, raggedy manger stragglers. 
And that's what we are out there in the wilderness. And with the word of God, with the ways that God protects us, with the ways he provides for us, he takes us raggedy, manger stragglers, and he turns us into what? A nation of priests who are fit to be God Almighty's next door neighbor in eternity. And you know, when we get used to thinking that this life is pretty good here and this is kind of okay, um, one of the things that this passage talks about is this time and times and a half and, and all of this. And remember that Jesus said, I'll be with you until the end of the age. Now we read the promise about him being with us, but sometimes we overlook the fact it says the end of the age. This battle is not going to go on forever. This world is not going to go on forever. And of course, we already know some of us are getting to this age where we realize this isn't going to go on forever. Time is always kind of ticking and going, and, and we have amazing promises of the fact that no matter how old you get in this life, the best is yet to be. If you've got a Bible, switch over, flip over to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 kind of tells us what we have to look forward to when we're subjects of King Jesus. He says, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order is passed away. Then he goes on to tell us that we are going to live in a place populated with people who are brave, believing, pure, life-giving, truthful, God-loving, transformed. They are like Jesus himself. And you know what? We'll be right at home there because we will be the same. We will be the same. When we think, well, you know, when you think about Christmas this year, I really, really do hope that you don't think about red dragons very much. But maybe, maybe, um, maybe you could think this year, one way you could make this the very best Christmas ever, ever, ever. If your focus would be on what the Lord Jesus has already done what he is doing, and what he has promised you. He came, that, that baby, that king baby came to bring us this amazing salvation, the absolute best, the indescribable gift, best gift ever. But he's also made every provision for us to persevere and to, and to live in this in-between time but with, a light, with an eye to what's coming next, what he has for us, this future is so dazzling that we don't even have words for it. So life can be pretty good, you know, especially when we're in a place. I, I keep trying to explain to my husband the importance of ambiance. You know, they want to pick a place to eat and you want to say, uh, no, you know, I need ambiance for the food to taste good. It really matters. And life can, you know, kind of, sometimes life gets kind of 
but we, we have a future that is so dazzling with such perfect ambiance that we can't even comprehend it. So we need to maybe, maybe this year sing joy to the world with so much gusto that somebody asks you, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? When you sing, you know, about the newborn king, really give that king word a punch. And think about the fact that how your life, how it's so different now because you have King Jesus. But that isn't even the main point, is it? What it's going to be, more dazzling, more great, perfect ambiance than you can even imagine right now, all because of this amazing, amazing thing that happened that night in Bethlehem so long ago. It looks like the beginning of a story when he came to that stable, but actually from the reaction of the heavenlies and from what we see that was behind the scenes, the whole deal was good as done. It's done. It's won. Let's pray. Lord, we can't thank you enough. We really can't. But we do ask that part of the way we thank you is by letting what you've given us just ooze out to the people around us. That we truly do have the kind of joy that causes other people to wonder what's wrong with us that we don't get bogged down and distracted and, and begin to think like everyone around us that it really some things just really don't matter that much when this isn't all there is. Help us to see people around us the way you do, to be able to see who still is in the darkness and to bring them along, bring them along into the light. Thank you for being our God. Thank you, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.